Freedom of Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness of issues concerning animals. This includes advocacy, activism, protection, conservation, and importantly, appreciation. This show is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne on 855am and we're streamed live via the 3CR website. Recent podcasts are also available on the 3CR website. That's www.3cr.org.au and Freedom of Species podcast website, www.freedomofspecies.org and all previous podcasts are available by iTunes. I'm Nick Pendergrass. Welcome to Freedom of Species, and we I'm joined by my co-host Adam Cardellini. G'day. And joining both of us today is Gonzalo Villanueva. Uh, we practiced that beforehand, but I didn't get it. But yeah, we're going to be discussing his book, A Transnational History of the Australian Animal Movement, 1970 to 2015. Thanks for joining us, Gonzalo. Good afternoon. And I thought maybe before we start thing, before we get into the specifics of the book, maybe you could just give a little bit of an overview of the book, uh, what it was about, how you came to write it, those kind of things. Sure. So the book covers the emergence of the modern animal rights movement in Australia between 1970 and, 20, and 2015. It uh, looks at its emergence um, in Australia, uh, the way it mobilizes itself, the organizations that have kind of evolved, and uh, also examines the consequences of the kind of actions that have developed over the last couple of decades, uh, both in terms of politics and also the kind of cultural consequences that have come from the animal movement. Great. And yeah, also before we get into the specifics of the book um, in, in more detail, I know in terms of organising this interview today, we had to organise it around your activism, around the duck shootings. I know you're, you've got your sort of foot in academia and activism as well. And, and we met through the Institute for Critical Animal Studies conference, which is all about bridging that gap as well. And I know at your book launch recently, you spoke about the importance of activists reading that. So yeah, I'm wondering if you touch on, yeah, generally this idea that we don't necessarily have to view academia and activism activism as two separate areas, but they can both kind of help each other, I guess. Yes, thanks for, um, thanks for mentioning that. I have been involved in, in um, the Coalition Against Duck Shooting for, for some years now, but uh, that has kind of increased in the last, um, in the last uh, campaign. And it's something that I've, um, I, think, I think everyone kind of comes, approaches the activism in, in their own way, and um, I certainly have tried to combine both my scholarship and the activist uh, and the activist side of me together uh, over, over time. Uh, I, th I certainly saw writing uh, this book as, as a contribution not only to historical scholarship, so not, not only something that um, people who aren't in, in, in the activist community can read and understand, 
but also something that could help um, activists themselves to appreciate the history that's come before them, appreciate the uh, the the movement um, in, in a in a wider in a wider sense. So. Uh, I, I I hope that the book kind of serves that scholar activist um, function, but uh, there are there are many people who um, who dedicate their lives to um, you know no no there are very few people who are full time activists, and um, I think the the vast majority of people combine a lot of their work with with activism. So um, it's it's uh, and and I suppose yeah, uh, academia is. Is, is is one area where we see some some kind of ac- academics combine um, to or c- come to to activism. So, and you're you're sort of a historian by trade as well, and yeah, I wonder also you want to touch on so yeah in your book you cover activism done in the you know 1980s by people like Peter Singer and Paddy Mark and these kind of people, and to modern activists it can kind of seem so long ago. And yeah, do you want to talk about the importance of activists? You know campaign today why it is important to know this history mm. um, I suppose let me start by answering that question by thinking about the function of history more broadly so th- there are a couple of ways in which I-, I think history serves a purpose and one of the ways um, so let me start with one the, the first uh, the first I think obvious way that people often approach history is 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 to understand to to use history as a way to kind of um, I think to to correct our our trajectory to to understand what's come before us to to know what's worked what hasn't and to use that as as a tool for essentially sometimes people use history as a tool to not commit the same kind of problems of the past um that's 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 i think one one you know kind of interpretation that history serves another i think is perhaps a, a bit more philosophical that Without understanding um, our history, without understanding the events of the past, we lack that kind of appreciation of of the efforts of, that has been uh, that have been undertaken before us. So, you know, history kind of widens our knowledge of of a past that may have been forgotten, um, that may be uh, erased from the kind of mainstream memory um, of, of historical practice. And writing history, I think one of the kind of most valuable things that that historians contribute is that it helps bring forward um, those marginalised and hidden voices. Um, And in this case, when I came to write about the Australian movement, I discovered that there were, uh, that, that the history of the Australian movement had been largely um, that it was largely unwritten, so there was no actual, there was no record of, of, um, of it. Uh, we're fortunate that there are a number of the founders and, and pioneers of the movement are still around today, and outside of their kind of fountain of knowledge, um, there are very few re- resources for those who want to learn about the movement to turn to. So that's that's what i um set out to kind of achieve was to fill in that that gap that um that i saw there now the the other benefit that i see with with history especially with 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 much broader history is that we can um I, I, it goes back to that first point i was making about 
learning from the past and learning the the, the kind of the, the triumphs and failures of the past. I think what this book does is that it it, it presents a a, um, a narrative of um, where we've come from in terms of the ideologies that um, w- this movement has developed, uh, the organisations that have sprung up, the kinds of campaigns that um, that we've developed, uh, the kind of political methods that have been um, created, experimented, and used in order to uh, in order to challenge the kind of politics and culture of animal exploitation. Um, so it, it, it's, it's, it's there for us to, to kind of to, to digest on a, on a wider scale. So we're going to go to a track now, which I think is quite relevant in, in, the, in light of the importance of history. So the track is Know Your History by the band Ignite. And yeah, you're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR. And while Nick is um, getting that song up, Gonzalo, I just wanted to ask, um, the, the history is from 1970 to 2015. Is there a reason that you, I mean, apart from you can't do everything, um, so is there a reason that 1970 was the start point for your exploration of mm. animal, animal rights um, activism in Australia? It's a good question, um, Adam, but I actually just thought of another very important reason why this, why we need to do histories. And I mentioned, you know, it's important to kind of um, uh, to highlight those marginalised and hidden voices. And I just don't, and I don't only mean the hidden voices of humans here as well. I think it's important to recognise the hidden voices of animals in these histories as well. Um, as we all know, animals are the main victims of history and the main victims of human history. And I think it's incredibly important to uh, bring them to the front and centre when we talk about uh, bringing up those voices who have been erased from history. So Absolutely great. Now, in, in terms of um, your question, uh, why 1970? Uh, why does this book start with 1970? Well, practically, yes, it, it's, it's not possible to write... Um, a history. Uh, uh, it, it, I, I certainly approach this as as a as a as a, as a kind of contemporary history. So mm-hmm. it doesn't delve into, although it mentions uh, the antecedents of of the animal movement. So we're talking about the nineteenth century um, societies for the prevention of cruelty mm-hmm. to animals mm-hmm. uh, and their evolution into the twentieth century and by the mid twentieth century. It does recognise that there is a kind of wider trajectory. Um, of, of a welfare movement that we've inherited. Uh, it, it really starts with the recent past because that is the kind of modern form that we can most identify with. And there is certainly scope to go for even further back. And I think we can sometimes forget that the struggles, uh, that the struggle for the rights of animals um, has uh, is not only decades long, but is is often centuries long. Mm, yep. So, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 crucial that um, we we don't forget that either. Um, and and maybe it, you know it, it's not something that you can appreciate with just one book. There's probably a lot of books you'll have to read <laughs> yeah. before before we can get there. But um, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll have another go at playing this track. So, yeah, this is once again uh, Ignite, Know Your History. You want to take a stand? You haven't made a plan, but you knew Crusade bring misery. Better know your history. You smell your war disease. 
This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome back to Freedom of Species on 3CR, and we are joined by Gonzalo Villanueva. And yeah, we're talking about Gonzalo's book, A Transnational History of the Australian Animal Movement. Before we get to that, uh, Gonzalo wanted to plug an event which is happening right now or happening today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's happening right now. So before coming to the studio, I was at uh, Bunnings in Brunswick supporting their vegan sausage sizzle. Uh, and proceeds from that go to Walla Animal Sanctuary uh, in uh, Ballarat and the surrounding areas. So if you're listening, then head over to Bunnings in Brunswick and help out the team there and say hi to them um, and enjoy everything they're offering. It's delicious. (laughs) Great. Yeah, go check it out. And, yeah, we, I mentioned a while back about uh, Gonzalo's book launch. So it was launched by uh, Peter Singer, who is a well-known ethicist, and it was also one of the you know, activists in the early animal movement in Australia. He launched it uh, along with Glenis Udjis from Animals Australia. And from the book launch, Peter Singer was wearing a um, T-shirt with uh, 1984 on it, and he was saying that this was actually it wasn't when the shirt with, was with from chickens on it, as chickens, well. chickens yeah, yeah. in 1984, chicken, chickens in wire cages. Yeah. yeah, and that wasn't the date that like the shirt was made. That was the date they thought they'd banned battery cages by, mm. and I think that was maybe early 80s. I couldn't, re- mm. I don't know if you remember the exact date, but it was, mm. it was a few years ahead because mm. he thought that once people knew about you know, the, the cruelty of battery cages, it would only be, you know, it would only be a few years and they would be ended. And obviously that, that isn't the case. And so, yeah, maybe you could start off talking about some of the, you know, maybe some areas where the movement maybe hasn't gone as far as they thought mm. they would have, or, or, you know, on the flip side, anything where maybe things have progressed much faster than the activists would have expected. Yeah, that's a great anecdote to kind of launch into, I think, what this book shows, um, which is that the movement started off with, these kind of assumptions that all all we needed to do was tell people mm. about the suffering of that animal's experience in uh, in in intensive farms uh, that uh, of battery hens being locked up in cages of pigs being um, reared in sow stalls and there was this kind of naive assumption, this quite optimistic naive assumption that, you know, we just needed to tell people about the realities of what was going on and that would flick the light switch. People would uh, reject the modern kind of uh, farming of animals, the version of, of, of intensive farming, and we would live perhaps in this kind of vegetarian world. And I do, and I, I'll, I'll be specific here and, and, and nuanced when I do when I use the word vegetarian, because veganism wasn't um, on the scene in the way we know it today. So it went from, and, and this kind of let's talk about it, let's talk about the rearing of, of the, the farming of, of animals, uh, let's, let's, let's expose this with our words, um, underpinned the kind of political methods and strategies that activists used at the time. Uh, in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. So uh, it was seen that if we can just talk to politicians and tell them the truth, that that would be enough to, uh, to, 
to reform the industry, reform um, the kind of the practices that were being used at the time. And it became quite, it became clear quite quickly that talking um, to politicians and telling people through newsletters or through campaign material wasn't enough. One of the um, one of the stories, one of my favourite stories, um, is from Christine Townend, who would would talk to um, people, members of the public, and tell them all about battery hand cages, battery hens, and they thought that there were batteries involved <laughs> in 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 exploiting hens here. So. You know, I think she, she, you know, for her, this was a sign that people were very naive, very ignorant of the way in which um, farm animals uh, were treated. Now, the progress of the movement that I um, have have shown or have marked out in this book is in the development of the political methods that activists have since used in order to kind of expose the realities of of animal exploitation and one in which I term as 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 one that is both innovative and provocative um, in an attempt to draw attention uh, both media and public attention to the culture and politics of animal exploitation and that development that kind of innovation has relied increasingly upon um, the use of visual material and other kind of political um, other kinds of actions that that gain that that get kind of media attention. So we can think about them as stunts. We can think about them as novel kinds of um, uh, novel kinds of actions to to try to get the media's um, uh, their their kind of insatiable appetite for sensational headlines to kind of put put the kind of actions on the front page. Um, now this is where we begin to see a lot of more direct action kind of um, kind of tactics being used, uh, both in an attempt to interact more directly with the animals that are being exploited. And here we can talk about factory farms. We can talk about duck shooting. Uh, but also as an attempt to 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 get that onto the front page, um, I think that's probably one of one of you know if we talk about uh, shifts and changes, we can mark that as as a change. But it's it's become a constant now as well that there are there are even more attempts to try to get the um, to, to try to get the, that media attention. And do you do you see a um, a limitation in that as as that's developed over the last couple of decades. I suppose it was really utilised very well by Greenpeace in that first um, atomic bomb sort of stuff where they sailed a, a ship to those islands off of Alaska and got that air, that those testings stopped. And then they went into whaling and they, they do these big stunts to get media attention. But over the last sort of 5, 10, 15 years, those, those big media attention-grabbing sort of stunts don't seem to have the impact that they might have had um, previously where we have a much more diluted um, media sort of apparatus. People get their media from all over the all over different places, different platforms, and it doesn't seem to... And, and with the increase of this method, we're seeing um, sensational things 
more often, so it might not have more of it, as much of an impact. Did you see mm-hmm. much of, or did you get a sense for any of that through the history of the the use of that technique and whether it was um, as impactful now as it was thirty years ago? Mm. I think one of the things that we should um, remember or we should we should acknowledge when we talk about the effectiveness or the outcomes of these kinds of actions, of these actions that are designed to draw media attention, is that, yes, they become routinized, they become normalized and perhaps lose their the impact that they once had. But as a result, we also see, I think, more and more where uh, we 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 are uh, we have those kind of graphic um, images of animal exploitation that circulate um, in the media, and most of that imagery still comes from from activists, mm. still comes from their firsthand um, video exposés. The media is still heavily relying on this, um, and. That's I suppose so that's kind of that's 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 one thing that that um, that is important to recognise. The other thing is how if, I suppose affective we is this in, how it, long's it, a piece with, of string with with of, with, yeah. a, with yeah. an A there right how mm. how how emotionally mm. um, impactful is this material? That is a harder question to try to um, to try to digest and sorry to try to analyse. And there's a lot of literature on. The um, on compassion fatigue, on people's resistance to graphic footage. And we're not just talking about animal um, mm. animal violence here. We're also talking about human violence. So how people's sympathies can be blunted by being exposed to too much graphic um, graphic material, um, too much visual material of wars um, overseas, of 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 children suffering, um, and. Th- it's a tricky one, really. This is this is this. this we begin to kind of now enter into uh, a debate about well, is 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 um, it, at what point can can we try to um, mobilize people's sympathies and their empathy um, when perhaps they're being overwhelmed by um, too much information too much graphic material um, and I think what we see with this in a, in a historical sense mm. is that it comes in cycles um, and part of those cycles do rely on the actions that activists take and the response and their relationship to the media as well um, you know and, and you know we can get quite nuanced here when we talk about the media because the media isn't this homogenous institution it's made up of a number of stakeholders um, the fourth estate is as the media is known um, has their own kind of agenda they have their own agenda they have their own kind of hierarchy and editorial uh, editorial boards um, choose what what kind of makes it to to the front page or or to the nightly news um, and that's a tricky relationship to kind of navigate as well so it can depend on who's inside that media room you know whether or not they're sympathetic with with the with the plight of animals and um, I think what we've seen with the live animal exports campaign is um, one the media has being highly sympathetic to this campaign. It's been something that's um, 
featured in, in, a, in a number of cycles um, that can we can identify. Can you just explain what the, to the audience what the Live Animal Export campaign is? Sure. So um, I'm just trying to think whether or not it's a contemporary or it's stuff from the beginning. <laughs> um, uh, well, okay, so the live exports, live, the live exports of animals started more or less in the 1960s, um, uh, a trade that emerged with the Middle East uh, uh, as a way to have an addition, as, as an additional market to the, um, to, to the sheep uh, market that existed in Australia. So there was a decline in mutton, a decline in wool, and sheep growers were looking for an, an, another market to sell their 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 flock. Um, and the Middle East was an attractive market, A, because there was a boom in oil economy there, and B, there was a preference for, for, for what they call hot meat, which is, you know, fresh, um, fresh animals that they could slaughter, um, uh, slaughter, with ritual practices um, at the the site um, where the animal was was sold, so in so at, in usually in the Middle East, um, the trade itself is is considered quite valuable. Um, figures kind of fluctuate, but I think the two billion dollars a year is the most consistent one I've seen in the last couple of years. Um, from so sheep were the the the, the uh, sheep were the the number that sorry sheep were were um, sold in high numbers at the very beginning and then cattle became um, the most traded animal. I think, I yeah I I, I I'm trying to remember the, the figures off the top of my head, but it, the high I think was in 1986. There was about seven million sheep being sent overseas for slaughter. Um, that was in 1986, 87, and then that's declined, I think, to about 2 million a year. Um, so there are about 2 million animals, 2 million sheep. We're just talking about sheep. We're not talking about, yeah, I don't have the cattle um, figure off the top of my head, but there's also goats that get sent overseas mm -hmm. and dairy cows now. Um, so the trading of sheep, the trading of animals, uh, as you can imagine, involves, um, it, it is quite a, it's quite a, uh, inflicts a lot of suffering. Um, so from, the paddock where they're raised, um, you know, as a, as a free-range animal, to being transported sometimes anywhere between fifteen and thirty hours on truck to the port side, and then being loaded on these on these um, ships that have the capacity to carry anywhere between fifty to I think there was a ship that could carry about ninety two thousand um, ninety two thousand sheep mm. on a three week sea voyage. Um, during a time of year that's um, quite hot, so it'd be around this time of year where the, the, it's summertime in the Middle East. And uh, as we've seen with the recent um, 60 Minutes expose, um, sheep can endure incredible heat stress, um, can suffer during those conditions, and the mortality rates vary between 1% and 2% on, on a shipment. And that 1% and 2%, when we t turn it into real numbers, um, can be anywhere between a couple of hundred to a couple of thousand um, mm. for one ship that's sailing. And we're not even talking about then the kind of practices that are involved in, 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 in handling these animals mm. um, overseas and the ways in which they're slaughtered. So the overseas market doesn't have, doesn't mandate pre-stunning like the Australian market does. Um, but uh, there is 
yeah, so that, that, that's been another point of controversy. Um, so there, there's lots of controversy around this. If, you're, if, you, if you care about animals, there's, there's no, this is a controversial um, and, 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 and uh, quite a despicable trade. And more and more politicians, mainstream politicians, have come to realise this. Now, going back to the question about, well, okay, so the kind of the cycles of protest that we've mm. seen, the what, the reason why we have um, seen more, uh, we've we've seen these first-hand accounts of the of these animals being treated. Now, we've so again, this has been an industry that we've known about. It's been developed since the 1960s. So it's, we've known about it for about um, 40 to 50 years, and I guarantee that the problems that we see today are problems that have always existed. But the reason why we're talking about this now is because activists, whistleblowers, mm-hmm. are getting these kind, are getting these video, uh, is getting the video evidence to show the public what's going on. And it, it goes back to what I was mentioning earlier about mm. it's, 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 you need more than words, and. This all developed um, despite despite knowing about this since uh, the early days when the movement emerged in the 1970s, and having taken you know positions against this, it wasn't until 2003 when um, Lynn White from Animals Australia travelled to the Middle East to gather first-hand video evidence of what was going on, um, and from there came this technique that I've called in my book uh, transnational invest- uh, transnational investigative campaigning, uh, a style of campaigning very similar to your kind of undercover exposés where you gather video evidence and, 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 and make a case to prosecute, um, publicly prosecute. Uh, it's 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 very similar to that in the sense, but it takes place overseas. It takes place in, in, a, in, a, in a very different kind of industry where... Um, you're outside of, of you're outside of Australia's uh, t- territory, outside of the laws that that apply to you. Here, you're in a very risky environment, very dangerous kind of environment. It's a male-dominated kind of environment. Um, Lynn White is, uh, you know, is is a taking great risk in in trying to go undercover there and gather this kind of material. And the very first um, one of the first sixty minutes exposés in two thousand and three relied heavily on her video footage um, to make that case and brought this kind of li- what they called a touchy subject to the Australian um, public. <laughs> yeah. And 60 Minutes um, have been you know, great partners with Animals Australia since then. I think they've had, mm, yeah, probably about a dozen kind of... I say a dozen because I actually don't really know the number, mm. but it's about a dozen um, kind of exposés. But... Um, but we've also had, you know, 7.30 a report, Four Corners, um, and all those major media kind of outlets, um, those major media um, uh, programs look into this into the subject. Mm. And it was interesting when I first got involved in the movement, probably in the early 2000s, it was kind of like, 
oh, this live export thing is something we're doing. And I didn't actually know that history that had been going on for decades until I'd actually been in the movement quite a long time. And there was a recent tweet, uh, this is from Darren Hinch, actually. I don't think we read Darren Hinch on the show too much, but um, Darren Hinch recently... Maybe rec- we should have him in one time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> recently tweeted, the 60 Minutes live export sheep cruelty story. What's new? I took a petition of 30,000 30, names to Canberra pre-social media in 1983, demanding an end to live exports. Another coalition government ignored it. And I, I thought that was kind of interesting that it, it kind of maybe mirrored some of the critiques from more radical aspects of the animal movement about the live export campaign. And so there's obviously been a campaign that's gone on, on for decades. And we went at the start, we're talking about progress for animals. Do you think this is a campaign that has led to a lot of progress for animals or, or changes in attitudes and these kind of, um, yeah, obviously we can measure in progress in a number of different mm-hmm. ways. But do you think it has been one of the things where we, we have made great progress progress for animals <laughs> probably not mm. um the reason why there are fewer sheep being exported is because of changing market conditions not because of pressure from animal activists um, however there have been industry reforms uh, there have been a number of reports that have come out that have been quite damning and critical of the industry. So we're having a lot more information um, that has been produced because of the activity of animal activists. And there are certain reforms that one could argue that have perhaps mitigated the suffering of animals. Um, And that's a difficult one to substantiate. Um, I'm not convinced that, look, if, if, if this, if this, if, if animal welfare has improved, we, we probably wouldn't... It, it, the, the industry wouldn't uh, be as controversial as it still is. Uh, if anything, I think this is another constant that we see, that the industry hasn't has been incapable of reforming itself to improve on animal welfare. So from three decades ago, there was a recognition of high mortality rates, stress, um, overcrowding, and the problems of, of ritual slaughter none of those things have changed. Mm-hmm. Um, the success or the, the kind of progress um, that we can see, which I kind of try to avoid the language of success and failure in my book mm-hmm. b- because I f- it, it, it is, a, a, I think, a problematic, um, at least in an academic sense, a problematic term to apply because, you know, one person or one group's success may Mm. be considered another person or another group's failure. Mm. And different groups, different people have different goals that they want to achieve. So there's 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 a lot of contention around how you measure success or failure what i've chosen to to kind of focus on is the outcomes Mm. uh, of the movement in in a political and a cultural sense. Now, the outcomes that we've seen with this campaign has certainly been a proliferation of, of, of imagery, of graphic um, evidence, and I think a greater understanding of what's going on in this in this industry, and a a a I think I, there's now strong public opinion in favour of banning this industry, so that is probably the best, the most significant outcome that we can see today, and. Yeah, it, it's 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 one of the, I, I'm I think it's one of these industries that 
is 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 still a winnable campaign is a winnable campaign right now we you know i think we, we can ban this industry we can um stop this trade um and i'll i'll, I'll stop myself from making any kinds of predictions or <laughs> or, or assumptions <laughs> like what that. year and what month yeah, because yeah, Ali, you heard it here first yeah. <laughs> an, another um issue you you well um, aspect of the history of animal rights in Australia that you, or animal activism in Australia that you touched on earlier was that things started out as vegetarian, people talking about vegetarianism and, say, stopping live exports. Live exports stops animals from getting on ships, but it doesn't stop animals from being slaughtered. Mm. Um, so has there been a change in the conversation around what protecting animals actually is or means in Australia? I mean, I, I feel like there there might be a shift towards something like veganism where it's a stronger um, stronger sort of emphasis on ending all, all types of animal animal use rather than, say, forms of um, use. So the shift that I've uh, written about in my book is one that we can see internally in the animal movement, mm -hmm. um, the shift from vegetarianism to veganism. Uh, and... We have to recognise that the emphasis on vegetarianism was there in Peter Singer's Animal Liberation book. So, mm -hmm. to his credit, uh, Peter Singer, being a utilitarian, says that you know we can't. Um, you know, I, he he famously says, well, maybe it's not that famous. I don't know how many people know this, but uh, he he says, you know, he's he's uh, he he's against animal suffering because he's a utilitarian, but he's also a vegetarian because he's utilitarian as well. So, in his book on animal liberation, he sees vegetarian vegetarianism as uh, a tactic, as a, as a permanent boycott um, against the um, against the meat industry. Um, I, I, and for obvious reasons, now this is a prince. This is a, a position that becomes a, a de facto principle uh, with the emergence of the of the kind of modern animal movement in Australia. So all the groups that emerge, the animal liberation groups in 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 across Australia between 1976 and 1980, uh, take a position that the most effective thing that one can do to challenge animal exploitation is to be vegetarian. Now, there is some recognition that people can go even further and eliminate things like, you know, eliminate dairy products from their diet, uh, eliminate um, the need to consume eggs, uh, the need to uh, yeah, buy cheese and, and other things and be vegan. So, that you know, they're aware of veganism. Veganism had been around for... Um, at least it comes into fashion in, in, in 1945 in England, but there's a vegan society that emerges in Australia um, as well. So, uh, but there is still a bit of a an odd dynamic there because even though on paper the Australian activists say vegetarianism is the most, quote, practical and effective thing that someone can do, it, it doesn't really look like a it doesn't look like an important campaign. You know, it's something that people talk about. It's, it's maybe an expectation or, mm. or an assumption that, you know, one should do. Uh, there are the newsletters at the time, are, yeah, little kind of recipes and things like that that are vegan and, um, you know, they tip their hat to that. But if, if you think it's the most effective and, and practical thing that someone can do, 
you would expect a lot more resources being pumped into a campaign to really build up the profile mm. of vegetarianism. And, and we don't really see that happening um, in, the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And there are attempts, well, there's, there's a conversation that kind of emerges. And this is, a, this is one of the a fascinating conversation that emerges um, within the movement. Um, one which that kind of emphasises, well, look, if we're going to be living according to our values and our, and our ideals, we really should change our diet to be vegan because we can't be advocating for the end of animal exploitation while we're chewing down on, a, on, a, on, on, um, on cheese or, or, or on eggs. Uh, and parallel to this conversation is a campaign to try to uh, set up the free, to, to set up the free range egg market, uh, and the people who are leading this aren't the free range egg producers. They're animal activists. They're people who are involved in animal liberation, New South Wales, and animal liberation Victoria. So they they you know they 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 kind of see this um, this 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 market that has been suppressed as it's better for animals because it's a free-range market. You know, This mm. is before we even had a free-range market and before anyone ever, ever found out about the problems with, with, um, with free-range, practical and mm. theoretical. So this idea of, 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 of living your lifestyle that, is, uh, that adheres to the values that you have um, brings forth this this this, this topic of veg- veganism uh, in the mid nineteen in the mid nineteen eighties, and it's something that I notice was debated here and there. A couple of articles circulated in the um, animal liberation press of the time, but it wasn't until the mid two thousands that you saw a dramatic shift of the of of the core leadership of animal activists. Um, who begin to advocate veganism, uh, and it's very subtle. It goes from you know we should all be vegetarian to we should all be vegan, and what happens thereafter is a more concerted campaign to advocate for veganism, mm. and that is a campaign that is. Uh, I think there are political dimensions to it, but it's certainly it's more cultural. It, it, it revolves around you know your personal your lifestyle about the values that you have about the about your identity as well mm. about you know um, it's 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 got to do with diet it's got to do with you know um, with values and identity and it takes all forms it's your you know vegan potluck dinner to world vegan day and vegan bus tours and you know everything that you can imagine that's that's around today begins in the in the early 2000s um so yeah i think that's where we begin to see this 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 concentration of resources into into veganism um so yeah do you want me to talk about stats as well what we we know um yeah i mean we probably maybe we'll take a track actually now and i did want to briefly mention that also mirrors things that i've heard in other countries as well Mm. so ronnie lee for example in the uk who's a founder of the animal liberation front the direct action movement was saying that you know in the past it was you know once you get in the movement against animal experimentation or fear or whatever of course you become vegan but it was like something amongst the animal advocates and it's only been quite a recent thing Mm. where it's been like this isn't just something we do it's something that we promote as a tactic Mm. to 
advance the cause for animals and promote the general public, not just amongst ourselves as vegans. Mm. Uh, but yeah, we've got a track. Uh, so Adam, do you want to mention the track? Uh, it's called Factory by Kiss Chasey. In 2016, 3CR published a book to celebrate the station's 40th birthday. Years in the making, Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR, is a visually stunning account of the people and ideas that make up this dynamic station. At 300 pages, the book includes hundreds of images and over 50 features on programs, people, music and technology from across the decades. You can get your copy of 3CR's book for $49.50 at the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Get a piece of your own history. 3CR's Radical Radio is available now. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. You are listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR and we're talking with Gonzalo Villanueva and it's been uh, great having you on. We were just saying in the break that I'm sure we could go for another hour and still have a lot to say. Uh, yeah, really interesting themes about, yeah, the rise of veganism in the movement and how that relates to activism today. But, um, yeah, we're just about out of time. So I wanted to give Gonzalo the opportunity to mention uh, where people can get this book and read it themselves and find out all the stuff we haven't got to Cheers, and it's actually been a real pleasure being in here with uh, with you both. Uh, you. Now, the book is uh, was published last year uh, in late 2017 by Powergrave Macmillan. Uh, you can find the book on their website. That's powergrave.com, I believe, or no, powergravemacmillan.com. I'm not sure, just Google it. Yeah. But uh, you can also find it at your local library, um, more likely your local university library, so they should have a copy of it. Or um, you could also probably find it online via a number of um, different distributors as well. Hmm. And actually, just before we went to air, I put a link up on the Freedom of Species Facebook page. So there's a link to the book in the most recent post up there, so you can check that out and like us on Facebook while you're there as well. So, yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, Very relevant for activists and... Yeah, we wanted to maybe in the last oh, couple of minutes, we'll, we'll get to maybe another plug for the Walar event. So can we give that another quick mention? We're not yeah, sure. So there's a fundraiser happening right now at the uh, Brunswick Bunnings. Um, and there's a vegan sausage sizzle and vegan um, sweets being sold there to raise funds for Walar Animal Sanctuary. Okay, great. And yeah, I, I also you, we mentioned you're involved in the campaign against duck shooting. So yeah, we don't have too much time to discuss this at the end, but do you want to give any quick plugs for those who want to get more involved and just yeah, briefly about why people might want to get involved in this campaign? 
Uh, okay, I don't have much time for, to, <laughs> to say all that. But if you if you wanted to find out more information about the campaign, you can always look up the Coalition Against Duck Shooting. Uh, follow us on Facebook and on Instagram. Um, it's a critical campaign to uh, stop the recreational shooting of, of Australia's um, or Victoria's native water birds. So Victoria is one of uh, yeah, only a handful of states that still allows this. The season started in mid, mid-March. It'll finish in mid-June. And you can come out on, uh, on the weekends to help out um, save some ducks. And, yeah, I, I did want to just give some, uh, yeah, final thoughts just, just generally uh, from reading your book. There was a mention that there was the, in terms of Google searches for vegan, that Melbourne was actually where a lot of those searches were coming from. So mm. another point you raised from your book in, in terms of some limitations of vegan activism is that, uh, yeah, it goes against social norms and that can be really difficult. So I just want to encourage people not to go to a specific event, but, yeah, if you do look up, you know, just online, there's all, all kinds of social events in vegan in Melbourne and sorry social vegans events all kinds of different groups so yeah if people are feeling you know like they'd like to be vegan but they're socially isolated there's so much going on in melbourne there's so many restaurants and that kind of thing so that can help to overcome those barriers to a degree yeah, I think. yeah. and yeah. It's, it's it's you know vegan products are so widely available today mm-hmm. um you know you talk to the older activists who would always the, the number one thing they would say is that they, there was no um no, they couldn't find soy milk anywhere mm. Mm. yeah i mean so they load ice cream or something yeah. like here in the yeah, stores yeah, exactly. so like we're, we're really cream. lucky yeah. today that you know that we have access to 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 veganism vegan and vegan products mm. yeah i remember hearing like there was like one ice cream in the 80s and it was like horrible and now we've got so many different choices and I, I think like even now with such a small like we've only got a fairly small portion of vegans we've already got all these products like imagine if we got to 10 percent or whatever like the how many products there'd be so yeah definitely check them all out and yeah we are about out of time can i just so, mention one other oh, sorry, thing yep, um, so dominion uh, the documentary uh, just came out um this last week and it explores the exploitation and use and abuse of animals in Australia in all types of industries. Well worth um, finding that somewhere. There's some premieres all over the country and um, check it out. It certainly has And the Dominion March... Yes, it didn't much coming up. I believe that is the 28th. Is that right? I think. Uh, we'll look it up Saturday. online anyway. Yeah. Yeah. This, this coming Saturday. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So check that out. All the details will be on Facebook and all the usual places. Yeah. So, yeah, stay tuned to uh, Encyclopedia. <laughs> Encyclopedia. Sorry. Uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. And you can also check out all of our old shows um, on freedomofspecies.org and check out old episodes that you've missed. Uh, thanks so much for coming in today, Gonzalo. My pleasure.